Oh, nice. So someone kindly brought to my attention uh, the fact it was jazz, in fact, that I had skipped or omitted, overlooked a passage uh, in the text here in Naked Awareness. It's on page 18. Uh, I just, I think I just saw it was indented and assumed it was uh, commentary, but it's not, of course. So I'm just going to read this now, just uh, to have see that the oral transmission is complete. Uh, some of you who are teachers in your own right, there are more than one of you here, uh, may want to share this with others, the transmission, the explanation, in which case it's good to have it complete. Right? And this one, really, anybody who would love to listen, uh, this, is, this is good for all. So here it is on, 18, on page 18, when Kamachamet writes, with palms pressed together holding a stick of incense, this is of course part of the the ritual for taking, um, for taking refuge. Uh, with palms pressed together, taking, uh, together, holding a stick of incense, the master and disciples invite them, the object for refuge, by chanting together. I'm just going to read this. It's very self-explanatory. And so, you are the protector, addressing now the objects of refuge. You are the protector of all sentient beings, without exception. The unassailable divine conqueror who defeats the host of Maras, who knows all things as they are. Lord, please come to this place together with your retinue. Lord, for countless eons you have cultivated compassion for sentient beings and you have made vast prayers to fulfill the needs of us all. Now when the time has come, please dispense a myriad of miraculous blessings from your spontaneous palace of the absolute space of phenomena. In order to liberate limitless hosts of sentient beings, please come together with your entire retinue. You are the Lord of all dharmas. Your complexion is like pure gold with a splendor more magnificent than the sun. Due to my faith, may you gaze upon me, peaceful and compassionate, subdued and abiding in meditative stabilization. With your dharma and primordial wisdom free of attachment, you possess inexhaustible power. Return, return, O being of the peace of purity. Omniscient sage, foremost of living beings, come to this place of offerings which are presented like beautiful reflections. Lord, it is good for you to come here. We possess merit and good fortune. Please accept our offerings, attend to us, and grant your blessings. When we offer this eight-petal lotus as vast as the galaxy, with joy and open-heartedness, please remain as long as you please. I must say, what a lovely invitation. Truly. And uh, just a tiny commentary here. What kind of just leapt out at me as I was just reading through that is that in the first paragraph, uh, he's highlighting, referring to the to the Bhagavan, the Bhagavan, Lord, the Bhagavan, uh, one who's replete with blessings. Uh, he's referring there to you who know things as they are, highlighting here the quality of the Buddha, of wisdom, of knowing this om- omnipresent awareness of the Buddha. And then we see down below the, the peaceful and compassionate, the highlighting the compassionate element, free of attachment. Right? And then down below, uh, I saw the power. Where was the power? With your, with your Dharma Prime, you, 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 you possess inexhaustible power. These are the three qualities, the wisdom, the compassion, and the power of enlightened awareness. So highlighting those, offering this invitation, then you may make this further, and then below that you'll see, just to contextualize, then you imagine bathing, and I've explained that already. So, thank you, Jez. Uh, Now the oversight is corrected. 
So that's that. And so um, today we'll move to the second of the four greats, Maha Maitri. Maha Maitri. The liturgy is very similar, and so I, I don't need to give as much explanation as I did yesterday. It has that same vein, the same, the same fundamental shift that we find for all four of these greats is that each one of these now is, as we'll unpack day by day, each one of these is presented as not only an aspiration, but an intention. And the mode of intention is actually taking upon oneself responsibility. Responsibility. So I'll do it. I'll take, I've got it covered. I'll take care of it. We all know what responsibility is. But the first, the first words that come out in Tibetan, Sem Chen Tam Che, Sem Chen Tam Che, Dewatan Dewi Gyutan Tama Chimarum, Sem Chen Tam Che, all sentient beings. We say this innumerable times, in, uh, especially the Mahayana, but elsewhere in Buddhism, all sentient beings. I think it's very significant in the Eurocentric, Eurocentric or Judeo Christian tradition, both, we often speak of all men. All men, all men, the United States Constitution, doesn't all men are created equal? It doesn't say anything about women, or slaves, or blacks, or Native Americans, and animals, well, forget about it. You know? So that's, that's, that just has enormous biases built into it. Enormous. You never find that in Buddhism. You never find, Glenn, da kyoka tamshit. It sounds ridiculous. I just said all men. Like, what? Only the one with penises, right? It's just like, why are you saying that? <laughs> I've never seen that. I don't think I've ever seen in any of the Tibetan literature I've ever read the phrase, Gyoka <laughs> Tamshe. It sounds crazy. Uh, but, but it's not even all humans, because of course, when they get gentle on that one, they will, men, you know, women are kind of included among men, uh, honorary members, something like that. But it's still all human beings, all humanity. And, and then in Buddhism, when have I ever seen mitamje? Virtually never. I can't remember actually. Mitamje means all human beings. I can't remember that coming up. It's always all sentient beings. All sentient beings. And sentient means, has a dual aspect to it. Awareness, of course, you're aware of this or that. But also sentient, quite rightly, it's a good translation. The, the word sentient also has that element of feeling, of caring. That is suffering and pleasure. It, it has that built in. And in the Buddhist view, and I believe it's correct, although it's not obviously or necessarily correct, that every being that is aware, every conscious being, is also a sentient being. So in science fiction, like anybody ever, ever walked to Star Trek, there's Data, who's extremely intelligent, and he's, he's clearly conscious, but then he has no emotions, right? And that's a very, very common theme in science fiction. The robots, the androids, and so forth and so on, they're conscious, but of course they have no feelings, they have no emotions. And that's fine, it's science fiction, you know, it's fun, it's just for entertainment. But in the Buddhist view, there is no such thing as a being that is aware, but has no feelings, has no sense of joy or pleasure or, or suffering, and so on. It's a package deal, they come together. And this is why, I'm kind of rambling a little bit, but this is why when the Dalai Lama was asked years ago, what do you think is the most fundamental drive in human beings, because we are human beings talking, but more, more broadly speaking, in sentient beings, what's the fundamental drive? And he said, caring. That is, we care, at the very least, we care about ourselves. 
and almost everyone cares about someone more than just ourselves. And then we can just ask, well, where does the caring drop off? In wartime, it's very, very clear. We care for our side, and our soldiers wearing this color, and then we care for the other side to die. We care about them, we want them to, be, to die, to be defeated, to be, and so forth, because they're wearing a different color, and maybe a different language, and different designs, so we know who to shoot. It's a very handy thing. It's, it's very courteous that you wear different colors so you know who the bad people are, so you know where the sharp demarcation is. But that's where it is. And of course we find this in races, uh, people of my skin pigmentation, sometimes my gender, sometimes my religion, my political persuasion, and so on. But it's always semjen tamje, semjen tamje. All sentient beings care. And the Bodhisattva ideal is to care for all sentient beings. So there's just no demarcation. That's where we start with that immeasurable equanimity. That's, that's, the, that's the ground for beginning to cultivate the bodhisattva ideal. If you don't have impartiality, if you don't have that evenness, then you're not really ready. You're going to venture out onto the bodhisattva path with preferences here and, and preferences and bigotry here and closed-minded and so forth. You, well, you're just not, it's, it's not going to get anywhere because this is indispensable foundation. Yeah? But all sentient beings, all sentient beings, there it is. It comes up all the time in Buddhism. And it comes up every single time in, in, the, uh, in the liturgy for these four grades. And so I remember grappling with this a long time ago when I was a monk living in Dharamsala, uh, studying and now receiving formal monastic education at a Buddhist monastery that had been founded by His Holiness. And uh, I just, I kind of just wondered, like, what am I supposed to think? Because we're, we're studying this all the time. Everybody does in Buddhism. What am I supposed to think? What's supposed to come to mind when I think all sentient beings? Because with you, with, if you're dealing with a, uh, within a purely Buddhist worldview, you have what are called Tongsum Gijikten. And this is a billion-fold world, a thousand times a thousand times a thousand, sometimes falsely translated as trilichism, like a 3,000-fold. It's not 3,000. It's a thousand to the third power. A thousand times a thousand times a thousand is a thousand million or a billion, yeah. So it's a billion-fold world, and a billion, it's a billion-fold world system. I translate it here loosely as galaxy. It's obviously a Western term. But a billion-fold world system, well, now when they're speaking of a billion-fold world system, it means each one of the worlds in that system is, in, is inhabited. If it's a planet that has no life on it, it's not, a, it's, not a, it's not a loka, it's not a world system. It's a big rock. That's all that is, just a big rock. It's got to have sentient beings on it. And then it's a loka, a jikten. And so dongzungi jikten is a billion-fold system of populated worlds, world system, planets, call it what you will. And then, and that's just for starters, and so we're in one of them, of course, in a system where there are a billion, let's call them planets, that are inhabited. And then they say, oh, and there are countless of these. There are countless billion-fold worlds. Okay? So when I say that the Buddhist worldview is no less small in space or time than modern cosmology, for which this particular cycle of the universe is about 13.8 billion years old, and it has roughly about 100 billion galaxies, each one of which having up to about a trillion stars. So you can start multiplying the zeros. It gets to be a lot of zeros there. Uh, that these are just almost inconceivably vast in dimensions throughout space and time. And so when thinking of all sentient beings, it's kind of easy, in my experience, maybe it's just my limited imagination, 
to actually have no one come to mind. Just kind of like, to whom it may concern. <laughs> like that, but actually, but it's not my brother, he's not all sentient beings. They're not my neighbors, and they're not you, you're not all sentient beings, you're just a small cluster. And so none of you, I, I have to focus on everyone, which means I'm actually focusing on no one. Right? And so I asked, I asked the, the abbot of our monastery, this wonderful teacher, Kenlo Sangetsu, I asked him, what should, I, what should I have come to mind when I think all sentient beings? Because we're reciting this every day, and I've been reciting this every day for decades by now. Many of you have. And his answer has obviously really stuck with me because it was so practical. He was one and another one of these monks, that, uh, monks, teachers, that really embodied the, embodied the Dharma. You just saw no difference between what he taught and what he was. He's such an, such an inspiration. One of the finest teachers I've ever met in my life. And very, very warm-hearted. He was appointed personally by His Holiness to be the abbot of this monastery. And so his answer was, sentient beings, all sentient beings, that's whoever comes to mind. Everyone who comes to mind. So not just everybody you've met, even if you've had a long life, you know, we're talking about thousands here, maybe tens of thousands. That's a small number. Everybody comes to mind. Well, this is Plato and Attila the Hun and, and Jesus and Socrates and, you know, Charlemagne. Yeah, they come to mind, you know, read a bit of history. Um, and then, of course, there are animals. Well, many, I, I wanted to be a naturalist. I was going to be a wildlife biologist until I encountered Buddhism. But now getting more practical. So, again, big, now it's a, it's a big field. And by way of internet, by way of reading and so forth and so on, we become... A lot of people can come to mind. Whole groups can come to mind. They do, of course. But where this really becomes very practical, uh, in terms of cultivating the four measurables and the four grades, is considering the range of people, the varieties, and just for the time being, let's focus on human beings, just because those, those are the ones we're engaging with the most. Not that they're even the most important, but they're the ones we're actually encountering. And if we consider the people who come to mind, those we know personally, those we know by way of the internet, history books, and so forth and so on. Well, for certainly everyone here, everybody listening by podcast, certainly a broad spectrum comes to mind. We know of some really, really evil people. I mean, the word has to be used. There are people who really have demonstrated very, very evil mindsets, behavior, and so forth. So we're kind of familiar with the worst of the worst, and they crop up, not, they crop up all over the place. I wish it would just be selective. You'd be just like, this group is, and all the rest of us are fine, but there's no group that's fine. If I divide, diverge a little bit, just in a very playful way, uh, for some years, I would, I would comment, oh, I'm a fifth-generation Californian. You know, like I'm real Californian, not one of those newcomers. You know, just playfully, but kind of like pride of state and a California. And then I was, I was watching a series of documentaries, and it was focusing on the 1860s, of my beloved state. I mean, it's a gorgeous state. Uh, and in the 1860s, I think it was, maybe the 1850s, in my home state, there are regions where if you'd go out and shoot a Native American and scalp him, you'd get a, you'd get a reward, like, like, like shooting a, a coyote. Shoot a human being. Man, woman, child, doesn't make any difference. You, you get to your $5 or whatever. By just going out and shooting them, and cutting off the top of their head to show that you really killed somebody. And then they give you, this is California. 
nice state, you know, golden state. And suddenly I didn't really want to say I'm a fifth generation Californian anymore. You know, it doesn't matter why it's just playful, it doesn't make any difference anyway. But this is California. We don't think, of, we, gen- we generally don't think of California as the, the realm of villains, you know, demonic, diabolical. But what is that apart from di- demonic and diabolical? Argentina did the, whole, did the same thing with the whole country. They, they pretty much wiped out the Native Americans there. In other words, they did what they did in California, but maybe more efficiently. So we know of this, and then we know of the wide range in between, and then we know of extraordinary individuals, you know, the Nelson Mandela's, the Mother Teresa's, the, the, these exceptional, exceptional people, Albert Schweitzer. The current Pope is a remarkable man, truly, from all I can tell, truly a holy man. And then we have these beacons, these beacons of light, of goodness, of virtue. And, and then, of course, there are very appealing people and very unappealing people, physically attractive, physically unattractive, and then just keep on going to the animal realm and so forth. So what Genlaus and Getsu was get, getting at is when you bring to mind the spectrum of just the type of individuals that you know, of, you know or know of, you've pretty well covered the six realms even in the human. I mean, not really, but symbolically. We have people who are embodying the qualities of hell realm, and we have rampant greed of like human embodiment of a preta. We have people who are living like animals in the worst sense of the term, bestial. We have people like in Beverly Hills and Santa Barbara and other Acapulco and the French Riviera and so forth, doing their best to emulate devas. You know, Tuscany, probably find some of that here. Uh, You know, and we're doing our best, and so we're covering the whole bandwidth, but we also have pure realms. We have, we have you know, people who are creating pure realm around themselves. We encounter such people as well. And so again, Lamrimba's point, I think, was very deep and very practical. And that is, when you think of all sentient beings, just think of the whole bandwidth of sentient beings you're aware of, and include them all, without excluding any of them. And equally, from the most sublime to the most diabolical, equally all, for the sake of all sentient beings, without exception. That's big. But of course, the without exception part is that each one has a Buddha nature. No one ever can or has been or ever will be diabolical to the core. That manifests because of constantly conditions coming together and manifesting. So in my more somber moments, I just wonder sometimes if I had been born the mother, uh, the, the child, the son, in 1950, of Palestinian parents who have been evicted and they've you know, really been re- received, been on the brunt, you know, the, the sharp edge of a lot of racism against Palestinians. It happens. Israelis are human beings. They don't do what other human beings do. And that maybe my uncle was, was killed. And my parents had a strong vendetta against the reigning regime, and they brought me up to um, serve the cause, to be a good terrorist, and find that backpack and go and blow up as many people. Would I have resisted? Could I, can I say in, in total confidence, even my both parents were absolutely gung-ho on this, thought this was absolutely the will of God, it's a good thing, it's justifiable, and they brought me up to fulfill that destiny, to go off and blow up somebody. Would I have such innate goodness that I would say, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, Mom and Dad, I love you, but no, I can't do this. I'm, uh, I, I can't. I, I, I would love to be able to say yes. And I can't. How do I know? I, I just don't know. And so if I could be a terrorist just by having different parents, 
and I'm not nothing special, but I'm just kind of looking. Is if, if ever I sense I'm I'm somehow actually intrinsically superior to the members of ISIS, for example, then I have to think a second time. Exactly what makes me invulnerable to, immune to, that type of attitude. What is it? And I don't come up with anything at all. If I were an Arya Bodhisattva, then yes. If I were so far, or maybe even irreversibly on the path, then yes. But I wish, but I'm not true yet. And so it basically just kind of puts me right down at the bottom of the pyramid. And then when I look at the kind of influences I've come under, under my parents, both very devout Christians, ethical, good-hearted, virtuous people, and the people I knew when I was growing up, generally the same, and then, of course, all the lamas and so forth that I've met. If there's any virtue here that's manifesting, if there is some, then I know, I know how it happened. I know how it happened. You know, good fortune. Yeshwarapton, when he gave me my monastic name, the first name was Jamba, because that was his lineage, together with uh, Gishnam Taige. Jamba was the, the name of the, the kind of lineage. Jamba Purshotramache. And then the second one, your more personal one. And so Gay shut up and called me Jamba. His name was Jamba Sharap. And he called me Jamba and then Kelsam. And Kelsam means good fortune. You're a fortunate one. You're on the, you're on the Jamba lineage, means Maitreya. You're from the Maitreya lineage, but you're a fortunate one. You made your way all the way from California, winding up the hill, going up to Dharamsala, and receiving monastic ordination from him. You're a fortunate guy. You're a lucky dude. <laughs> That's what he was saying. So he didn't say, holy Joe. He didn't say, oh, you're so special. You're lucky. <laughs> That's what he really said. You're really lucky. Okay, so, good, so all sentient beings. That kind of impacts it, makes it practical, doesn't it? I, I, I have just no interest in empty liturgy. I just can't deal with it. But now that part is not, not empty liturgy. So we're starting off, okay, I get it. But this means in practice... As I read the newspapers and, you know, what's going on in the world today, we all know what's going on, basically. And then I encounter different people, I recall people in my life, and then, I'm, and then I just have to be aware, I'm saying this, I do this succession, go to yoga, like many of you with a Kalupa background, and we're saying this every single day, at least six times a day, all sentient beings, all sentient beings. This means every single one of them, no matter how they treated me, no matter, no matter how they treat anyone else, if I exclude them, I'm breaking one of the fundamental root bodhisattva precepts. Don't do that. You know. So it means no one is excluded. We never give up on anyone. Ever. You know? That's practical now. Really practical. Then this big one, it really leaps out. Because we have in Buddhism this big emphasis on non-self. There is no such thing as an independent, autonomous, self-existent self. But we have this, this liturgy may, why couldn't all sentient beings, or just to put it in vernacular, why couldn't we all, or every one of us, that would be another way of saying it, but why couldn't all sentient beings find happiness and the causes of happiness? Why couldn't we? There's that again, starts with a question. Each one does. And then when we see there, there is no reason why each one couldn't find happiness and the causes of happiness. Then we arouse the aspiration as in the immeasurable loving-kindness. May it be so. May each one be so endowed. But the third one is the one that, that startles. Startles. Because it has the I word so prominent. It really does. Tedar dakijao. Tedar dakijao. I will do that. 
I will bring all sentient beings to happiness and the causes of happiness. I mean, that's the, that's the personal pronoun. I. I will do it. And it's kind of like I cosmically reverberating out through time and space because literally no one is excluded. <coughs> Excuse me. I had to find the angle here. <laughs> that was, you may call that pet. People listening, by, just call that pet. That was my invitation to realize Rigba. If you didn't get it, another cough is coming. Don't, you'll have multiple chances. So... Um, What's up with this, with this big, flamboyant, cosmological, megalomaniac, it sounds like. But I shall, I shall. And of course, we looked at that briefly, so now even more briefly. If the referent of I in that regard is this human being, then it's silly. If the referent of I is this continuum of consciousness, the individual carrying on from lifetime to lifetime, silly. If the referent of that is Dharmakaya, Buddha nature, pristine awareness, primordial consciousness, that's the only dimension at which it's not silly. And it's not only not silly, it's profoundly meaningful. Right? But it is taking responsibility. That's how they phrase it. I'm not making that one up. It's taking responsibility for all sentient beings. Now, one might very well reflect. I think they're covered. I think they're already taken care of. Because how many Buddhas have there already been? Buddha Shakyamuni, he's the fourth in a series of a thousand Buddhas. And then we have all of these great beings, these great adepts, Milarepa, Naropa, and Padmasambhava, and Songaba, and so forth. We've had many, many enlightened beings. I mean, we have maybe more than we need. And each one of them is saying, I will do this, I will do this. And I'm just, you know, I'm just really ordinary being. You know. And so they've got it covered. I think maybe they don't really need me. Because <laughs> all the Buddhas have been saying this, and they're already in, completely enlightened Buddhas. So what do they need me? What, what's one more little chip? Actually, what's the big deal about being one more Buddha? Because there are already Buddhas everywhere. Buddha might everywhere present. So what's the big deal if you just throw a little pebble, pe- pe- even if I become enlightened, and you throw me into the pool? It's just one more, one more guppy. You know, it's a Buddha guppy, but still. <laughs> there are lots of Buddhas out there, so what's the big deal of having one more? Is that really needed? Isn't, isn't it covered? You see, I'm always trying to wiggle out, <laughs> find an escape route, because it just seems so utterly awesome and kind of wild. Well, it's true. Amitabha, the great blessings of Amitabha, Sukhavati, blessings of Buddha Shakyamuni, of Tara, of Majushri, of Chenrezig, Chenrezig. And then the many manifestations of Gyawakamapa, of course, it's only the Dalai Lama, many manifestations of Chenrezig, Avalokiteshvara. So it seems like, on the one hand, it's covered. And this, from my perspective, as far as I can tell, that's many religions actually stop there. And they say, yes, all, all human beings need to be saved. But when all is said and done, God will take care of it. Jesus will take care of it. Shiva will take care of it. Allah will take care of it. They don't need me. They're God. They're omniscient. They're omnipotent. They're all-powerful. Uh, the Buddha will take care of it. Theravadans, Theravadans, they do not encourage. There are Bodhisattvas in the Theravada tradition. To my mind, there's no question about that. But as a tradition, if you go to any really knowledgeable Theravada scholar and say, how about I develop the motivation of Bodhisattva? Here's their answer. Do you think you're one of the? Do you think you're one of the? the, the you, you are destined to be one of the Buddhas. Do you think you're Maitreya? 
Because right now there's only one Bodhisattva in the, in the world, and that's Bodhisattva, and that's Maitreya. But by pale we, the fifth Buddha, if you think you're Maitreya, then okay, go for it. <laughs> but if you don't think you're Maitreya, then get real and become an Arhat. Because Maitreya's got it covered. Maitreya is the next Buddha. And after that, there will be the sixth Buddha, and this is a cycle of a thousand Buddhas. If you think you're one of those, okay, but, but if you don't, well then just become an Arhat. Get free, for heaven's sakes. So there's no strong encouragement. In some cases, no encouragement at all to really set out on a Bodhisattva path, but set on the path of it to become an Arhat. So as far as I can tell, and I could, there's so much I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know almost everything. But with that vast field of what I don't know, there may be some other tradition that teaches bodhicitta, but I don't know of it. I don't know of it. It seems to be unique to, Buddha, to, to Mahayana tradition of taking upon oneself the responsibility of living all, liberating and bringing to perfect enlightenment all sentient beings. But now, is this kind of like a competition? Like Buddha Shakyamuni, well, Buddha, I'll pick up where you left off. It's okay. I got it covered. That's silly. That's silly. I'm not going to be silly here. But then Buddha does. Buddha's, the Buddha's mind, the mind of any Buddha is all pervasive, as we understand it in the Buddhist context, Mayana context. So, how does this all fit together? And I'm reminded of the story of Milarepa, and I have to, and I have to thank Kathy for correction here. It's small, but it's, there's no reason to make unnecessary mistakes. The lame goat story, the lame she-goat story, it wasn't Milarepa's uh, goat, a mistake. I just said we had a really clear memory that's false for about 40 years. <laughs> I was thinking it's Milarepa's goat. It wasn't. It was a Lama Ngopa. Lama Ngopa. And Milarepa went to him first as a Vajrayana master and received actually empowerment. And he just didn't get anywhere. It just didn't work at all. And then Lama Ngopa with Milarepa, they went off to see the great teacher. He was renowned, the great Marpa the great translator, the one who'd been to India and brought back these many sacred texts. And they're coming to meet the great master. It's like meeting, going to meet the Dalai Lama or Sakya, Sakya Pandita, I mean, great, great Lama. And so Lama Ngokpa brought all of his possessions with the exception of a lame she-goat, and, and he didn't think she'd make the journey anyway. And they all showed up. And then it was true. Then Marpa said, where's your goat? You know, I want the goat too. And then it was complete. Correct? Yeah, good. So, but the re- so it's good to correct. It wasn't Milarepa's goat. The gist of the story is the same. So I didn't lead you astray to some deviant path, you know, by giving false proprietorship over the goat. <laughs> I haven't lost my credentials now. <laughs> um, but here's the point. Why well, mention it now, except to, to uh, correct an error, uh, and that is that Lama Ngopa, as far as I can tell, he's he's a good Lama. He gave empowerment. He's a good lama. And Milarepa got nowhere with him. Nothing happened. And if we understand this from a Buddhist perspective, the karmic connection just wasn't there. The karmic connection with Marpa was big time. And as soon as and it said, as soon as Marpa saw Milarepa come in, he already knew this is going to be my heart son. And here's a guy who just killed 35 people. This he's, he's going to be my heart son. Right. He didn't show it. Because he had to bring Milarepa through a lot of purification. Otherwise, he could never lead him on the path. But there's the point. So, one extraordinary lama, but let's say the other one, a very competent lama. Right? And so the simple point here is that the 
efficacy with which a spiritual friend, a guru, a lama may lead others on the path, and really along the path, right, to an awakening, is not simply a matter of how realized the lama is, or what cities the lama may or may not have, or the eloquence, or the clarity, or the erudition, or the depth of compassion. None of these are trivial. But it's not, that's not the only factor in play. The factor in play is also karmic relationship. Karmic relationship. And so when we look, I could really ramble on a long time, I already have. But when we look at the previous lifetimes of the Buddha, and there are many, many accounts, we find that those five disciples with whom he connected, that, with the, that they're practicing ascetic practices together, the Buddha and then the five, and then the, then the Buddha, you know, got restored his health. They left him. And then the Buddha saw, when he saw who is ripe, who has little dust on their eyes, he saw clairvoyantly, they're the ones, and he made a beeline from Bodhgaya to Sadhanat to seek those, those five out. First of all, why? Because they're his favorites? He liked them better? No, of course not. But he saw the strong karmic connection was there. They were really ripe, and the connection was there, lifetime after lifetime after lifetime, you know. And then he just walked into their presence, and in that first Dharma talk, one of them became stream enterer right there, at least one. Boom, he just gained realization in one Dharma talk as he turned the wheel of Dharma, the Four Noble Truths. And then they all did, of course. And so, karmic connections. And these are ones that are fostered, nurtured, reinforced, lifetime after lifetime after lifetime. And it can be spousal, it can be mother-child, it can be brother-sister, it can be friend, it can be a guru-disciple relation. And it often manifests in myriad ways. One who's your spouse in the last lifetime might be your child in the next. And the next one could be your guru, and the next one could be your uncle. And the next one could be a business partner. But it's kind of like bad pennies. They keep on coming back, these relationships. They keep on coming back for better and worse. For better and worse. You know. But the karmic connections do tend to reinforce, to strengthen and strengthen. And where the karmic connections are strong, that's where you may have the greatest impact. So it's said in the Bodhisattva that it's better to have a bad relationship with a Bodhisattva than no relationship at all. Yeah, <laughs> kind of intense. But it's better to encounter a Bodhisattva and have a negative thought towards him, which is really not a good idea at all. But to have some connection, you know, maybe just say, oh, you look stupid or whatever, I don't like your clothes. You know, why are you bald? you know, whatever, and then like that and go off to the next bar. But at least you've made a connection. So that won't be a really good connection right there, and there may be negative consequences for that. But now you've come into the field. You've come into the field of a bodhisattva. A bodhisattva, you've, you've come onto the radar of a bodhisattva. What's the bodhisattva's response, a true bodhisattva, when you insult him or her? You look funny, you look stupid, or you're a Buddhist, I think Buddhists are blah, blah, blah. What's the Bodhisattva's response? Compassion. If they're talking out of delusion, I pray, may you be free of delusion. It's going to be compassion. So the hook is already there. You've aroused compassion for you as an individual, and the hook is there. So even though all the Buddhas have the same degree of purification and same degree of virtues, I mean, they're they're all completely homogenous in that regard, they do not have the same each one, from, my, from Buddha Shakyamuni to Maitreya and so forth, they do not have the same identical network of karmic relationships with other sentient beings. Now that's not only true from Shakyamuni to Maitreya, it's from Beata to Michelle. Nobody in the universe 
has that constellation of network, of relationships with other sentient beings, human, animal, and possibly otherwise, no one can fill Beata's shoes. And that's His Holiness Dalai Lama, that's a Penjana that's Gyawakama, but that's anybody. No one can fill her shoes. No one has that constellation of relationships. No one. And of course, Michelle and all the rest of us. No one can fill your shoes. Which means that regardless of your level of realization or lack of that at this point, you have a unique constellation of relationship with, with sentient beings. And bear in mind, it's not like 5,000 or 10,000 and then it's cut off. Because of those 5,000 are related to 5,000 and, you know, out and out and out and out. No one can fill your shoes. Right? No one has your connections with this array of sentient beings. And of course, from day to day, as we meet, to meet new people, or somebody comes into the field of our awareness just by way of the internet. We read of a mother, we read of a community, we read of an individual, and they've come into our field. We don't, we haven't, they don't know we're here. That's okay. You know, you're there, you, you are, you know they are there. And that does matter. Because the hook of your compassion you go out by way of the internet, and so forth and so on. And the connection is made. Right? But nobody has your constellation. It's an overlap, of course. But then I was just speaking with one of you today. Uh, several of you, six of you to be specific, but one of you today saying, and he was saying that I've trained with this teacher, very fine teacher. I've trained with this teacher, very fine teacher. I've trained with this teacher as well. Right? A constellation of teachers. And I'm one of this person's teachers, but within a bouquet, within a constellation. Right? And so is there overlap in terms of what I might be able to offer as a Dharma teacher, what I may be able to offer to this person, and another teacher, of course, is overlap. We're not teaching disparate, incompatible dharmas. But then I'll never fill that lama's shoes, or that lama's shoes, and they won't fill mine either, even if they're immeasurably more realized than I am. And they may, they may be, but they can't fill my shoes. And they wouldn't want to. There's no need for them to do. So all sentient beings now, it is all sentient beings. No one's excluded. There's no cutoff point where you say, I have no connection absolutely whatsoever with this group here. Because there's no barrier. That's the whole thing. There are no barriers. That interrelatedness just goes out in an ever-expanding field. And it, there's no cutoff point in space or time. Right? At the same time, within that field, there's an inconceivable number, number of sentient beings with whom we have special relationship. Such that, such that, for example, when Daniel, when Daniel one day achieves Samyak Sambodhi, perfect enlightenment. One day, one day, why not? And so there he is, and he's manifesting with the 32 major and the 80 minor marks, and he's, and he's just sitting under his Bodhi tree, and he's about to perform the 12 deeds of a fully enlightened being. He's going to have his own five, or something comparable. He'll have those who will meet him, and they're going to achieve enlightenment so quickly. I mean, Bahia heard a, a five-minute Dharma talk from the Buddha and became Arhat. And others, they get, a, they get a little Dharma talk, they get a phrase, and they become stream enters like that. Why? Because those connections, connections were made. Right. So a final point, and that is this whole notion that it's a phrase I've made up, but I just, it seems to be inescapably true. It may not be true, in which case somebody needs to point it out. But it seems to me inescapably true. And that is that each of us is, in fact, at the center of our own mandala. 
You look around, it's perfectly obvious, you're in the center of the universe. Look around, everybody's around you. You are in the center. And it's kind of like, you know, just metaphorically, I'm rambling again, but like, you know, the expanding universe, expanding and how all the galaxies are moving away from each other. But if you're in any one of those galaxies, all the other galaxies seem to be moving away from you, which suggests that you have either really bad body odor or that every place is the center. Because whatever galaxy, 100 billion of them, right? But it's space-time itself that is expanding. And so wherever you are, all the other galaxies seem to be withdrawing from you because it's like the muffin, like the raisin in the muffin that's you know, growing because of the yeast. It's rising because of the yeast. They're all moving away from each other, right? Little, the little raisins in the muffin. Or dots on a balloon. As you blow the balloon up, all the dots are moving away from each other. Just two metaphors. So it could look like whatever galaxy you're in, you're in the center of the entire universe because all of the rest of the universe is moving away from you. And it's true, you are the center of the universe from your perspective. But then so, so is it true for the adjacent galaxy and so forth. So it's just a metaphor. But here we are, each one in the center of a mandala. And as our minds are purified, our perceptions of all those around us will be purified. Our awareness of the environment will be purified. And as we continue to purify the mind, everything around us is becoming purified, purified until you open your eyes. And what you see around you are only Buddhas and Akanishta, the highest pure realm. And now you're about to become perfectly enlightened. But you didn't go from here to there. You didn't go from one place to another. You actually are still in the midst of movement. And your environment is purifying, purifying, purifying. And then you see, from your perspective, all sentient beings are in fact Buddhas. But you're also aware that all sentient beings, from their perspective, are sentient beings. And they're suffering. But you see their purity. Because of your purity. And they see their impurity, and the impurity of their environment, because of their impurity. And then, of course, we have only one job. Free them all. But you're in the center of the universe, so who else could possibly do it? You're in the center of your universe. You're the lord of the mandala. No gender specific. You're the center of the mandala. And, they're all, and it includes all sentient beings. So who else would they look to, except for the person who's in the center? And so therefore liberate all sentient beings. Yeah. Okay, that's enough. Let's find a comfortable position. Maha Maitri is on schedule.
in a spirit of great loving kindness, with this motivation, and with this intention, settle your body, speech, and mind in the natural state. Resting in the stillness, the clarity, the luminosity of your own awareness. Turn your awareness outwards to the world around you. Let it illuminate the world of sentient beings, all the realms of existence, all inhabited worlds. then more intimately, all of the beings of which you are aware. And attend to the simple reality that every sentient being of every kind cares, cares about the feelings they experience, wishes to find happiness. Everyone. As Shandadeva says, while we seek to find happiness, out of delusion we, we destroy the very causes of our happiness as if they were our foes. So while all sentient beings wish for happiness, their very pursuit of happiness is veiled, obstructed by delusion, graving hostility, giving rise to only more suffering. never satisfied, never fulfilled, as long as we pursue our happiness under the domination of ignorance and delusion. 
which raises then the question, the first of the four elements of the liturgy, why couldn't all sentient beings find happiness and the causes of happiness? Raise the question to yourself. we focus for a little while on the seven billion people, human beings on this planet, why couldn't each one have enough to eat, have shelter and clothing, have medical care, education? Why couldn't each one have all their hedonic needs fulfilled, met? Why couldn't that happen? from lifetime to lifetime, why couldn't every sentient being, whatever mode of being they presently embrace, why couldn't each one find happiness and the causes of happiness? As we extend the field of caring, as we already care about ourselves and our loved ones, we extend this to all those beings who care about themselves, and that is everyone. Each sentient being is indeed endowed with a Buddha nature. Then there is no reason why every single one couldn't find happiness in the causes of happiness. They simply need to find the right causes and conditions to manifest this inner purity of their own being, their own awareness. And so if it is in principle possible, for each one, everyone, to find happiness and the causes of happiness. And as we attend to all such beings, arouse the aspiration, the aspiration of loving kindness. May it be so. May we all find happiness and its causes.
but each one find their outer conditions so that their hedonic needs may be, may be met. And may each one find the conditions, encounter the conditions to ripen, to awaken their own Buddha nature, their own pristine awareness, so that each one can find the happiness that they seek from their very core. The happiness of awakening, the happiness of perfect enlightenment itself, the ultimate happiness. For we will never stop moving. According to the teachings of the Bodhisattva Way, we will never stop moving. Until we gain such realization, we may even pause as an arhat. But even then, we'll be set in motion again. Awaken to the fact that there is more to be done, the final obscurations to be removed. May each one find happiness in the causes of happiness. Then we move from aspiration to resolve, to a pledge, to an intention. I shall do so. I shall bring all sentient beings to happiness and the causes of happiness. Imagine calling out to all sentient beings from the center of your mandala, the center of your world. And for however long it may take, for as long as space remains, for as long as sentient beings remain, abide by the pledge to apply yourself tirelessly until each one has been brought to their own fulfillment, their own perfect joy, by helping them cultivate the causes of perfect awakening.
So we bring to mind this lofty ideal, as in the first step of the self-directed loving-kindness, the first meditation. Then we turn to the second question, what would we love to receive from the world around us to enable us to realize such happiness? So in similar vein, we turn to the fourth element of the liturgy, May the gurus and the enlightened ones grant their blessings to enable me to do so. This is the help we need. We may envision this supplication being granted breath by breath as we inhale. Symbolically imagine the blessings of all the enlightenments, all the gurus, converging in upon your body and mind from all sides, above and below. The whole of reality by way of these enlightenments rising up to meet you, to support you, to empower you, bless you to bring about the inner transformation, the third element of that initial meditation, to bring about that inner transformation, that purification, that unfolding, unveiling of all the qualities of enlightenment in your own being. So that again you can breathe out and breathe out by way of your own being, like like light shining through a prism Send out the light that you've received, refracted through the prism of your own Buddha nature. So for the remainder of the session, let's breathe in, breathe out. With a request for blessings, and the receipt of blessings, the reception of blessings. and breathing out the light of great loving-kindness, and venturing into this realm of possibility, imagining as the light flows out in all directions, striking individual sentient beings. Imagine each one being brought onto the path, finding the causes and conditions to set out on the path of their own liberation, their own awakening, and breath by breath, Imagine each one realizing their heart's desire, realizing perfect happiness. Breathing in, breathing out. Let's continue practicing now in silence.
Bonasa. So time to go back to Penjanamuchi's text. Page three in the phase of the mundo preparation. So, going to the root text here, this is again all caps, all capital letters in italics, quite clear. It's nice in the, when you have text like root text, like the Majamaka Avatara and so forth, then commentators or those reading, studying the text, naturally want to know what did the author have in mind. It's the gongba. What, is, what did he have in mind? He or she, it's usually he in Tibetan Buddhism. But what, what did they have in mind? That's exactly what is meant by that. And so then, the, then multiple commentators say, well, this is what he had in mind. And then, of course, they have their own perspective. So some they, they start debating, you know, like Nagarjuna. Uh, <coughs> Nagarjuna, well, was he more in alignment with Svatantaka Madhyamaka or... So it's a major issue. What did the Buddha have in mind, you know, in the Prashapanamita Sutras? Chittamatra or Madhyamaka? Well, here we have it, it's, it's, it's kind of done. Because the same person who wrote the root text also told what he had in mind by writing commentary on his own root text. Now, when it comes to the commentary, then you say, yeah, but what did he have in mind there? And so sooner or later, somebody has to, you know, deliver the goods. And so that's my job here, trying to Really simple job. Try not to distort what he said, not obscure it, but reveal it clearly. That's my job. So I'll do my best. So here he writes in the root text, first in order, and I'm just reading the last, this first verse again. First in order to enter the gateway and erect the supporting pillar of the teaching, in general, and the Mahayana in particular, you must exert yourself in going for refuge and arousing awakening mind, bodhicitta, not just by lip service or words alone. So we really had, an, I think, enormous help from that whole chapter, from Kamachamirambache, to really f- fill that out. So we've done that. So we now go into the next verse. Also, since seeing the real nature of the mind depends on collecting merit and purifying obstacles, you should prepare as much as possible through reciting the hundred syllable mantra, that of course is the mantra of Vajrasattva, and a hundred times, a hundred thousand times, reciting that a hundred thousand times and confessing your moral lapses, your, you know, so, vices, uh, violated precepts, broken samayas, and so forth, reciting, uh, so confessing this hundreds of times, okay? So, just very briefly on this, merit, I remember, I, I was asking, it was, again, Gishingo and Taigi, all my basic questions, I was with him for like a year and a half, and he was my principal teacher for just really learning Dharma, and I asked this question, simple question, so we have these two issues, accumulate merit. I mean, it's, it's, it's a really flimsy little word, at least in American English. It sounds quite trivial. It's like merit badges for brownies and Cub Scouts. I'm sorry, it has a really trivial connotation. A lot of people can't stand it. So if you'd like to just go to Sanskrit, you can. It's punya. But it's, it is a type of energy, a kind of force, a kind of power that is accumulated through engaging in virtue, whether it's by way of the first five paramitas, skillful means, cultivating wisdom, going into retreat, helping the ill, any kind of thing, anything that's virtuous, is storing, accumulating, bringing together kind of a, kind of a spiritual energy or power or force, which then can be directed in a myriad of ways. And on the one hand, we have that. And then on the other hand, we have purifying obscurations, purifying obscurations. And these, in the Mayana perspective, consist of two types, afflictive obscurations. These are glaciers. 
And an arhat is completely free of those. All of them are equally free. But then there are the cognitive, avaran in Sanskrit, the cognitive obscurations, the subtlest veils that need to be removed in order for the full wisdom, compassion, and power of Buddha mind to be revealed, to be unveiled, to be completely manifest. The arhat has not purified those. That's why even an arhat cannot remain an arhat forever, just abiding in nirvana, not in the Mayana view, because you're not finished. You're not finished. And sooner or later, poetically, a ray of light will emerge from the heart of the Buddha, strike the arhat's continuum, and arouse him from nirvana with a message, there's more to be done. And then voluntarily take birth, not thrown by karma and klesha, but then cultivate bodhicitta and get on with it. As it says in the, in the Lotus Sutra, there's only one final destination. There's only one final destination. Shravakas, Pratyeka Buddhas, Bodhisattvas, Christian, Buddhist, Hindu, whatever. We don't need to call it Buddhahood. Just call it perfect awakening. Or call it be perfect as your Father in Heaven is perfect. Call it whatever you like. But there's only one final destination in the Mayana view. That's my view. And so, so it's re- removing all obscurations that veil this, to use again Christian terminology, this kingdom of heaven within, or just keep to the Buddhist terminology, Buddha nature, your own pristine awareness. But the question I posed to Gishin Taiki was, um, with the obscurations, I can conceptually understand that they're finite. Nobody has an infinite number of obscurations. They're finite. And so I can imagine that you set on the path and then you've completely purified, you've finished purifying all the afflictive obscurations. Good. That means if you're on the Bodhisattva path, you're an eighth, an eighth bhumi, are you Bodhisattva? Pure bhumi. You're finished. You're now finished forever with all mental afflictions. Now you have to achieve the ninth and the tenth and then on to enlightenment to completely purify the subtlest veils of cognitive obscuration. But then you finish those and then you're finished. So there was a finite amount of obscurations and then you've cleaned them all away and there aren't any left. But when it came to merit, you can always do more. I mean, really, really. I mean, you can always do more. Just more hospitals, more gifts, more kindness, more. You can, you can always do more. So when is enough enough? You know, on obscuration, it's clear, you're finished. But when is enough enough? When have you stored enough merit to have enough merit to become perfectly enlightened? And he gave, I thought, a very, well, obviously, I remembered it. Now it's more than 40 years ago. He said, well, it's not just more and more and more, because, of course, you can always have more. I mean, you can have an infinite. I mean, if, you, if, you, if your consciousness has no end, this means, in principle, you could accumulate an infinite amount of merit. But you don't need to accumulate an infinite amount of merit to achieve enlightenment. Otherwise, you never finish. There'd always be more, right? It's a straight logic. So if you don't need infinite, therefore you need finite, but then how much? Because now it's finite. How much do you need? And he said, well, it's like charging a battery. When the battery is fully charged, you're finished. <laughs> I can understand that. He's speaking to a California guy. You know, he's 21 years old. Charged battery. I got it. Fully charged. Yeah, I got it. Okay, makes sense to me. That's what he's talking about here. But for purification, you want to purify, purify not only the afflictive obscurations, the cognitive obscurations, but it would be a really good idea to purify as much as you possibly can these negative imprints, negative karma, negative imprints stored on your mental continuum from past misdeeds. Uh, they will otherwise rise as big obstacles on your path. So you'd like to clear out the obstacles, 
before you set out on the long journey. So that's why that. So, so that's root text. And then a bit more root text. He's going to be commenting on all three of these verses altogether, so I'll, I'll do what he did, read all three of them. Then we'll get to his fairly extensive commentary on this, on these three verses. And then, so we've done these, so we have the refuge in bodhicitta. And then we have collecting merit, purifying obstacles. And then we have the third element of these preliminaries. He's talking about the core preliminaries. And that is, then make heartfelt appeals again and again to your root guru, who is inseparable from all the Buddhas of the three times. The very notion of root guru can be understood in two different ways. One is root, you have root guru and lineage guru. So in one interpretation, these are both sound, a root guru is a guru with whom you've had direct contact. Just that. You actually receive teaching and parama, what have you. That's your root guru. It's your actual guru. You've met that person. And then, then you have the guru's, your guru's guru, who you may have never met, but it's the same continuum. And so, so for example, with Geshe Rapnan, I never met his principal lama, who didn't make it out of Tibet. Geshe Jama Kedup. I never met him. But he was Geshe Rapnan's principal guru. So he's the my lineage guru. And then he had a guru. And he had, well, I never met them either, at least not in this lifetime. So they're my lineage gurus. And then that goes right back to Buddha Shakyamuni. I haven't met him either. Lineage guru. Lineage guru. So the root are your immediate ones, and the lineage are just those beyond. Now, in some cases, like some of you are Lama Zubaramachi's disciples. Well, one of his lamas was Lama Yeshe. But you probably, many of you would have met him, not all of you. But then one of their gurus was Geshe Rapten. And you may or may not have met him. So then he may be your lineage guru. Right? So just that, that simple. On the one hand. On the other hand, another meaning, and I think you're familiar with it, the root guru, is if you have only one guru, if you only have one guru, then that guru is your root guru. Uh, but if you have multiple, and, and most Buddhists, Tibetan Buddhists anyway, most do, and some have many, many. Uh, Atisha had 60, 60 gurus, uh, with whom he had this you know, formal guru-disciple relationship. Among a, an array of gurus, there may be one, but it could be more than one. It's not monogamy. It's not spiritual monogamy. We should just throw out that whole notion. This is a spiritual relationship. There's no possession here. Uh, but the root guru, if, uh, and it could be one or more, again, is one with whom you feel a very, very strong, like your deepest sense of trust, the deepest connection, the deepest sense of blessing, the strongest connection, the deepest sense of reliance, where from your very heart, this is my inner context, this is what is, I have to speak from that perspective. I'm not going to try to secularize these teachings. I have no interest. This is, this is the one where you, you turn to the guru and, and you really, to him or her, gender is irrelevant. And you, as you turn to the guru, you really do have that heartfelt aspiration. This is a relationship I would love, I cherish, to sustain from now until enlightenment. And so the disciple may repeatedly ask the guru, please, in all lifetimes from now until I'm enlightened, please always catch me with a hook of your compassion. That's a root guru. That's a root guru. And so, that's deep. It's much, it's much stronger than a marital relationship or any romantic relationship. It's much stronger than friendship. This is kind of like the most important relationship of all. And it can be with more than one. And uh, this often happens. His Holiness had two root gurus. I mean, for, at least for starters. The senior tutor, the junior tutor. And so, and so on and so on. It's very, very common. But that's the general meaning of it. But now just to elaborate just a little bit on that. Uh, many of us will have, among our lamas, some of our lamas may be renowned, like it's only the Dalai Lama, Gyalakamapa, 
and so forth, and not only be renowned as in being famous, but also really have re extraordinarily deep realization. A young Janamuchi who is not extraordinarily renowned outside of Tibetan Buddhism, but his realization, like the sky. And so, so we, some of us have the good fortune to meet these true, truly realized individuals. And then in all likelihood we'll meet other lamas who don't have that realization, that level of realization. Not, not everybody has the same, of course. You know. But they may be still qualified. You know, a really good, solid geshe who studied well, has good ethics, good motivation, is a clear teacher, may have not spent much time in meditation, may not have very profound realization, but is ethical, is benevolent, is compassionate, skillful, caring of the disciple. That's enough. That's enough. But then it's very easy for us ordinary people where we, you know, we, especially in some cultures, I won't mention any of them, but they're all over the place, that are very hierarchical in nature. You know, even America is, I mean, everybody is, and some are more than less. But it's then very easy to, to superimpose a grid, a hierarchical grid. Well, I've got these lamas. Now, this is the highest realized one. He's really terrific. And this one's really very good, but not that good. And then there's the one that's given me an awful lot of teachings, but of course, he's not much different than me. He's just, you know, but he's good. <laughs> but now when I take refuge, I'm taking refuge to the big one, you know, the big one. And the other ones, well, you know, also ran. You know, it's easy to do that. Because that's appearances. You know, that's appearances. Uh, and within the Mayana context, and especially all the more Vajrayana context, it's completely flamboyantly missing the point. Because what we're doing is reifying them all. Reifying them all. This one, by his own nature, I'm going to start using female. This one, by her own nature, inherently, like Kandola, for example, or Kandola Rinpoche, another extraordinary teacher, and one of and Sakyadamala Rinpoche, Sakyadamala, one of my lamas. Uh, it's very easy for these extraordinary beings to reify them. That you are inherently exceptional, extraordinary, realized. And this one inherently is more like me, but still a few steps ahead on the path beyond me. So I'll, I'll check this person out, check her out as well. So it's very easy to reify them all. You're intrinsically this, you're inherently this, you're inherently this. And we have this whole hierarchy. And now we have the one who's most similar to ourselves. And you're my Dharma buddy. <laughs> you, know, you know, you're not much. Uh, it's because I'm not much. It's very easy to do that. And it's completely missing the point. And then it's not really good to yoga. It's called idolatry. Well, one is reifying the Holy One as someone absolutely out there, separate, inherently existing, existing from her own side. As soon as you do that, it's reification. That itself, then your guru devotion becomes an expression of delusion. Because it is idolatry. It is idolatry. We can have idolatry towards statues, towards books, to traditions, to temples, to stupas, and to human beings. And it is idolatry under any whatever name you like, it's still idolatry. And it may be kind of virtuous idolatry, but idolatry tends to be dangerous. Because that if, in you, if you insult the one that I've reified as inherently you know, pure and so forth, I probably have to beat you up, or silence you, or subdue you, or you know, whatever. This, how, that's kind of the history of religion, right? We can burn your books, but you can't burn my books. We can destroy your temples, but you can't destroy my temples. We can insult or kill your lamas, but don't kill my lamas. You know? I think I just gave the history of religion throughout the world. Sad history. I wish it were only religion, but it's not. It's politics. It's everywhere. It's human beings. 
And so the point there is, and I'm giving you just classic teaching and really brief because we need to get to the text. But the classic teaching from Geshe Ngon, Taiki, Geshe Dabdun, all my lamas, they say the same thing. And that is, it's natural if you have more than one lama, that they will have different degrees of spiritual maturation, insight. I mean, why not? You know, it's of course. Some like Chogitijana Maji, well, 16 days he dwelled in the clear light of death. And, you know, and, and I just saw Chokke Tichin Rinpoche. I checked him out on YouTube. I never met him. But he's one of the most magnificent Sakya Lamas of the 20th century. His Holiness Dalai Lama had tremendous veneration for him. And all the Sakya Lamas did. And I just saw this little clip of him on YouTube. And I was just, I was so moved. You know, just, and it's a YouTube of a person I never met, but I was, oh, wow. Such utter sublime humility. Such gentleness, such just, it kind of, by way of YouTube, the purity was just transmitted, you know. Well, not everybody displays that, you know. And I'm not making it up. It wasn't I had pure vision. A lot of people had that vision of him. That's why he was renowned. And then he put his cards on the table when he passed away, and he dwelt for 16 days in the clear light of death. So he showed. This wasn't just other people having a lot of faith. They had a lot of faith in a person who really was a sublimely realized individual. No surprise. But then he also showed it, right? And so the point here being that it's quite natural that if you even have two two lamas, one probably has greater realization than the other, or maybe greater compassion. The other one has greater patience. The other one has greater wisdom. The other one's more articulate, and so forth and so on. Of course, because you know they're not gingerbread men or women; they're individuals, and they have their own trajectory. But as we're venturing into Mayana and specifically into Vajrayana. You may, over the course of time, identify one or more individuals and feel, this is, this is a relationship I really want to nurture. I want to keep on encountering this individual until I'm enlightened. Whether it's in a pure land, whether it's in, on this, this world, wherever it may be, it, when I come back, if I can meet with this individual again and come under the care of this individual, it'll be okay. You know, that kind of trust, that kind of really heartfelt connection. So imagine you, and everybody knows who it is for me. It is, in fact, one person. Uh, I have to shuffle papers now or something. <laughs> do, do something. Um, and then you think of all the other ones with whom, it may be two or three, or in my case it's about 40, uh, with whom that relationship has been made. And they really do kind of look like like one source of light refracted through a prism. And here is this woman is manifesting as a Dzogchen master, and here he's manifesting as a sublime Tara emanation, Sakyadamala, and here manifesting as a yogi's yogi, Yanam Rimba, and here manifesting as Geshe Rapten, the, the Geshe of Geshe, and so forth. But each one manifesting in a different way, but all coming from the same source and of the same nature. So they kind of like that. That's just classic teaching. But then there's no hierarchy. Even the one being manifesting really quite ordinary, and the other one manifesting not ordinary at all. You know, but still of the same nature. That's the idea. And in this way, then inseparable from the Buddhas of all the three times. Okay, we'll come back to this. But there's the root text, and that's where we will pause. And we have a very rich commentary coming.
So I was thinking as we were doing the practice, which I must say I really love, the, um, the, great, the great meditations. Uh, I'm conjoining each of these with the breath, kind of natural. Um, and in between sessions, as you're just walking about, I hope, I hope you're enjoying daily walks here, what better place to do it. Uh, as you're going about daily walks, you're walking off to get your dinner, walking back, uh, just out and about. You will be breathing, chances are. And so you can, of course, simply, as you're walking about and you have no other demands on your time, you may practice mindfulness breathing, as we have. Arousing, releasing, full body awareness, mindfulness of breathing. It's very good. Maintain that flow of sanity, that flow of sense of ease, stillness, clarity. Very good. But you may also enrich that same practice especially as people come into your field of awareness. Like if you're walking along the road, it's a nice road, I find. Because it's not so heavily trafficked, I feel in danger, but it's also not empty. And so I'm always, you know, like good pedestrians are, I'm always walking on the side where I'm facing the traffic coming, so I can see them. Well, guess what happens? Every time a car comes, there are people in the car. And guess what happens? You have the opportunity to make a comic connection with them. And they won't know it. They don't need to know it. But you can, as they're coming along, and they're just about and about their business. You can just send out rays of light. Of, May you be well and happy, great loving kindness, great compassion. You can make your karmic connection right there. Just as they're driving by, and they're gone. Or somebody's walking along the street. You don't even need to look at them, because, you know, people, you know, if you're a man and, you, and it's a woman, who knows what she's going to think. Maybe it's very easy. If it, if it seems perfectly fine. I mean, buongiorno, that's fine, you know. But some of them don't look, I found here. Some of them don't look. Then I don't try to... <laughs> I don't try to catch their attention. I'm kind of shy by nature. And so you don't need to look. That is, they don't need to... You just, out of the corner of the eye, just make a connection. And then I think in your dining hall, there's other people, yeah? Attend to them, make a connection. Breathing out, breathing in. So that's enriched mindfulness of breathing. Yeah. I remember Gishing on Taigi, he comes coming to mind a lot here, to my mind. But when, t- when talking about mindfulness of breathing, he said, mindfulness of breathing, why don't you just practice Donglen and be done with it? <laughs> 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 sure, breathe in, breathe out, but for heaven's sakes, enrich it. <laughs> you know, bring in Donglen. <laughs> what are you just going, <laughs> yeah. this is kind of like an empty car. <laughs> You know, fill it with love, fill it with compassion, not just mindfulness. And so, at the same time, don't, you know, exhaust yourself. So there we are. But these, these practices, they really lend themselves, especially when sentient beings come into the field of your awareness. Breathe in, breathe out. Then we're really moving in the direction of what Dom Dumba said. Yeah? Give up all attachment to this life and let your mind become dharma. Then you don't have a sense of practicing dharma and then not practicing. You're just like in a current. Merrily, merrily, merrily. Flowing down the stream. Yeah? Good. Enjoy your evening. See you tomorrow morning.